Welcome to Women Unfiltered, a podcast empowering women to step into their authentic selves every damn day. I'm Lynn Calloway, an entrepreneur, wife, mother, and a woman in tech. And I'm Brie Griebel, a rescue mom, health and wellness enthusiast, musician, and also a woman in tech. Join us on this journey as we navigate our friendship, identity, and differences and challenge you to do the same. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Women Unfiltered. This is episode seven. So just doing a quick little check-in. Bree, how's your week? I know we literally <laughs> went through like the snow apocalypse. We didn't have power, water. We've really have been struggling through it and we're, we're kind of laughing about it, but it was in no way a, a, a laughing situation. Um, and so yeah. many people have lost their lives and still many of us are without water. Or if you do have water, we're under what, like a boiling water advisory. And it is just really crazy right now. Yeah. So definitely want to, my heart goes out to, to those folks. So yeah, how are you doing? I have had a lot of anxiety over the past week. It's just scary because every moment of every day you wake up, well, I mean, I wasn't sleeping all day every day, but <laughs> it's like you'd wake up in the morning and be like, do I do I have power? And it yeah. wasn't always that you did. So you'd wake up and you'd be like, well, when am I going to have power? And this is, mind you, like we are in Texas for those that may not know. And it is extremely unusual for us to be in single digit sub freezing. Yes, we'll get a freeze like maybe one or two days a year. Literally, that's like the most that yeah. we will have a freeze come through. But this was multiple days in a row. Yeah. On top of then not having electricity to warm our houses, apartment buildings, whatever the case may be, which then caused pipes to freeze and burst and have excessive amounts of water just draining into homes, apartment complexes, and water having to be shut off, people not being able to shut off their water because the dial that you have to turn to shut it off was freezing and breaking for people. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to wait for the city to come out and turn it off. They were already over inundated with calls, grocery stores not having any food. food. Or expired food because their power went out so they couldn't sell it. Four hours of wait times. I mean, my grocery store, it was a minimum two-hour wait time to even get in. And then you've got COVID, a pandemic on top of all of this. So we've got warming centers for people that had no electricity, and maybe their pipes are freezing and bursting all over the place at home, and they can't do anything about it. And now we're being put into warming centers uh, with massive amounts of people, and we're going to probably see the results of that in the coming weeks. And hopefully, there are a lot of safe measures being taken. But at the same time, it's like, people just wanted to be warm at the end of the day. So very scary, tragic situation. I'm from Wisconsin, and have never in my life seen this like grew up going through multiple extreme winters, but we had the resources to be prepared for things like that. Our homes were built to withstand those temperatures. And we had snow plows, like roads were, were salted beforehand. It's just and it just I have been in Austin for almost six years. And again, we've had days where it's been freezing before and this has never happened. So just terrifying. Yeah. And, and I think mental health too, like right now for a lot of people, 
yeah, it, it's been it's been hard. Um, so lots of anxiety, and that plays, I'm sure, into my hormones just being <laughs> all over the place right now. <laughs> Dr. Callaway, yeah. we've got a yeah, guest down here, and she'll, I'm sure we'll we'll definitely be diving into that. But then um, I yeah. know that you experienced not having power and water more than I did. Um, I was luckily in a uh, area where there's lots of hospitals on the same power grid, and so they we're trying not to shut down our power as much because they had to use their generators. Then. Yeah, so- yeah, absolutely. And then just the anxiety and fear around like having a, a two-year-old here who was like, like I literally had him in like three layers of clothes and like a hat. I mean, he he's just a rambunctious boy anyway. So it's like, it, it was nothing to him. It was just another day. But like, I mean, there were periods where we were cold and, you know, that's just heartbreaking to know that it's not just you that you have to worry about. You know, you actually have a child that you have to make sure that they're safe. So I'm just so glad that we made it through that because so many other people just had such a terrible time with that. But speaking on health today, the episode that we are going to dive into is women's health. And joining us today is Dr. Calloway. Just to give a little background information on her, she is a native of Athens, Georgia. She is a graduate of both Emory University and the Medical College of Georgia. Her specialty is, she is OBGYN, but she focuses on holistic gynecology. Uh, Her practice is actually based out of Decatur, Georgia. The practice is actually called Holistic Gynecology. And we are so happy to have her uh, with us today to really answer a lot of our questions and dive into women's health as it relates to holistic health. So we're we're so happy to have you here today. <laughs> oh, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Welcome. After a bit of uh, troubleshooting difficulties, my goodness, I'm glad we finally got it to work. Fingers crossed it lasts through this. But yes, welcome. You're a second guest. And I know this is a topic that is near and dear to Lynn and my hearts and our experiences too, uh, with what we've gone through in our own individual health stories. So ecstatic that you are here to answer lots of questions and give us all your insights. Yeah, for sure. Um, And just to kick it off, because I know so many of our listeners might have questions in terms of what is holistic health or what is holistic medicine or gynecology as far as that goes. So I just want to open the floor to you to kind of answer that question. What is holistic gynecology and how does it differ from traditional medicine? So I, my approach is in the sense of holistic means to look at the whole person. And unfortunately, uh, that word has been used a lot in marketing to be synonymous with an all natural approach when it, it encompasses that. But it means looking at not just the use of natural products and non-pharmaceutical care, non-traditional care. It means looking at the whole person, all the various components of their health, uh, mind, body, spirit. And so it's not just looking at the problem, but how did this person get the problem and what are the factors? And in approaching it, what sort of different ways do we, all the areas we need to address in the Uh, I guess the proper nomenclature, what we would say I do is called integrative medicine. So I integrate conventional um, medicine with a more natural based approach and natural um, meaning uh, everything from diet to lifestyle change, non-pharmaceutical. But I also do still write prescriptions. I also still recommend surgery 
when it's the best way for the person to return to wellness. And that's the focus, you know, what doing whichever modality gets the person to wellness. And I would say in 95% of my patients, we're doing both, you mm-hmm. know, um, with the immediate issues being more conventional sometimes, but the long-term more preventive focus is more natural. Mm-hmm. I actually have a vet for my pets that is integrative mm-hmm. because of this reason, because both I think Eastern and Western medicines play a big part in the whole person and preventative and finding yes. the root causes. And That's right. we don't have to have an extreme method of like doing extreme surgery or a, a really harsh medicine that may have all these extra side effects. If there's a more natural way to approach it, like having those options as a consumer <laughs> to choose what I want is, a, I love that. I love being able to to choose that. And can you be in Austin, Texas, please? <laughs> yeah, because we actually don't have very many like integrative medicine. Yeah. Like I was able oh, really? to, no, I was able to find one um, here that I'm seeing and they're, they're, they're really good, but they're always booked up because of that reason. Cause like, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not very common. Mm-hmm. And with my own personal health journey, I, I just, you know, to each, to each his own, like if traditional medicine is what you do and that has worked for you by all means do what's best for you but my own personal situation i had more questions than answers um and that really pushed me to to seek help in other places and i think so many of us can can speak you know to that you know being someone that suffers from thyroid disease and having my hormones all out of whack and all these different things integrative medicine and holistic medicine was definitely the way for me so yeah yeah i feel like too with my experience it felt like it was always just a band-aid what traditional medicine has offered not all the time mm-hmm. absolutely not all the time but there have been times where i was diagnosed with endometriosis and i was told to go on birth control but that was the only option I was given. And then I dove into researching more about the condition and understanding it and understanding maybe what foods trigger it and that birth control is kind of just masking those symptoms. And I wasn't able to, I was gaining a lot of weight. It was just, it was just a hot mess. And so just dove into to researching that and understanding how food plays mm-hmm. such an important part in your everyday health and long-term health. And so, yeah, Dr. Calloway, I guess to pivot, how or why did you decide to focus on holistic medicine? And I guess too, with the schooling, did it differ at all? Or have you done a lot of self-study in order to understand more of that holistic side of things? So my journey began with my own health issue and the conventional uh, approach for severe migraines was just not compatible with work. And that led me on a, uh, on a journey of using, you know, somatic healing, which massage therapy is. And, you know, it was a snowball at that point. I mean, uh, there are no coincidences and I was in my own journey led to see this other side of healing. And then it made me look at what I do and how many women keep coming back for the same thing, as opposed to addressing any underlying issues that contribute to their issue. And, you know, I've been in practice 30 years and I can honestly say how it is now compared to how it was 30 years ago is going backwards. 
okay, mm -hmm. 30 years ago, there was the time to spend to really listen to your patient. And we don't have that now. Mm -hmm. The pharmaceutical industry did not have as big of a role in it, and the insurance industry did not dictate your care. Now, today's world, the insurance industry is dictating your care right down to your pharmaceutical. So, you know, as much as the pharmaceuticals get their bad raps and some of that is their marketing, just know that it's the insurance industry that's driving it all. Mm -hmm. And the quality of care that you receive is based on them saving money and making it cost prohibitive for doctors to do what I do because they don't want to pay and therefore I don't participate. And that gives my patients options to see me and I don't have to follow an insurance script. And that is what makes the difference. One of the biggest things I see in my patients who come to me from other doctors, take for example, the endometriosis story. I see quite a few. And when we talk about their options, what I find is the lack of understanding. Like nobody's being educated. You know, they're just given prescriptions and no one knows what they're for and they don't understand the pros and the cons. And sometimes I may agree with that decision, but it's a shared decision. You know, when the patient hears the alternatives, so these are your options. Now, which one do you think you can do long term? They may come right back around and say, you know what, that makes sense for me. But at least they feel better about the decision, you know, as opposed to having it crammed down their throats. And I think that's today's people, you know, they're savvy. They can kind of do their own research. What they need is for doctors to help them understand, okay, which applies to me and what's the best for me. That's great advice. I was just going to say, going along the lines of insurance and how that plays such a big part in dictating consumers' availability in terms of what they can have access to with doctors and medicine and, and what's being covered. Does your practice do like a subscription? Like, um, do you? Because I know that there's some mm -hmm. doctors where it's like you pay a monthly subscription right. and you get access to them and and there's other services that are covered by insurance like lab mm -hmm. work and things like that. Is that how yours so, works or, or how do you integrate that holistic part? Of well, it? for me, it's I mean, the holistic part is just how I do it. I, I don't to do it okay. the other way is not I for patients who have insurance, we use it for their labs and we file it so they get a deductible credit. But and prescriptions that I do still write, but for the office visit itself, most of them are paying out of pocket. And, you know, what I would say to people who want to have their health insurance monies be used for the care of their choice, it's called a health savings account, you know, because mm -hmm. even with your insurance, with your health savings account, you can go anywhere and you can use those dollars. And, you know, I support my patients going in and out of network, you know, there's something I want them to do that's high ticket. I'm going to recommend they go in network for it. And I kind of partner in that care, you know, for many other things that it's going to be more long-term approach to it. We can, you know, do what we do, you know, through my office. I don't do subscriptions. I'm a pay as you go. I have kind of mixed feelings about that whole subscription. You know, my patient's have access to me all the time. But again, if you're a healthy person and you're not needing me that much, you shouldn't have to pay every month. But when you do come in to see me, you're going to be paying for that time at that time. And 
that lets people, you know, kind of plan. That makes sense. Right. In terms of the types of issues that some of the women that are coming in that they're having, could you kind of give us some insight to like, what is your typical patient? Like what, what, what are some common issues that they are dealing with? So I treat all GYN issues um, still. And, you know, so I have everybody from, uh, you know, problems with periods, cycle irregularities, endometriosis, pelvic pain, fertility I do, which is my favorite, menopause, fibroids, you name it. I pretty much do do it all. And probably my biggest referrals are for people who have recurrent vaginitis. Okay. Yeah. What would you say to those who kind of feel like integrative medicine or a holistic approach to medicine is kind of, they see it as it only being for the affluential or people with money and might be intimidated by holistic medicine? Like, what would you say to those individuals? Well, it's called look for your practitioner. And, you know, unfortunately, it is expensive. And, you know, uh, a lot of the integrative practices kind of do market to the more affluent because they tend to have the money to pay for the care, but not all of them. Mm. And it's more of, you know, and I use this analogy all the time is what do we want to spend our money on? Okay. So as I look around and I see women who I can tell by looking at their dress and accessories and all other external things, spend a good bit of money Uh, in the course of a month or a quarter, you know, they may drop double, triple what I charge. And at the time that they're doing it, it's important because they like the look. It's, it's all about what you want to invest in. You know, if you want to invest in your outward appearance, I find people find the means to do it. But for some people, that's just not their value system to say, OK, I'm paying all this money for my health insurance. I should use it. And, you know, I say this, you get what you pay for. You got a $30, $40 copay. You're going to have a $30, $40 visit. And if you think that doctor has got all the other money that was charged and you only had to pay $30. No, the doctor probably got just a little bit more than that. Uh, So they have to do a volume to make up for the fact that they're not get paid full for seeing you. So it's, it's, it's better than no care, but it's budget care for sure. And then for those who cater to the affluent, I, I see some of the bills from, you know, colleagues in this area, and it just blows my mind that they're charging that much for care. So, you know, there are people out there who charge what they need to, because we have expenses. It's a very expensive practice, Um, but we're not trying to, at least I know in my practice, I'm not trying to get over, you know, on someone who is at this point, by the time they walk in my door, fairly desperate for a solution. In terms of having a primary care doctor versus a gynecologist, is it more common for most women to just have their gynecologist as their primary care doctor and they they don't have like a separate primary care doctor? Not anymore. The opposite is true to my dismay. 
Okay, the insurance industry is wanting the primary to be the gynecologist for those patients if it's a if it's within their realm. So wellness visits, contraceptive visits are being done by primary cares, and I it, it is nowhere near the same level of care. I I do not like what I'm seeing. I do not like the confusion around how often a pap should be done. Understanding that a pap smear is just a test. It is not a pelvic exam and most women don't know the difference. So we have women not even getting a pelvic exam except every three years or so because they've been told they don't need a pap smear. Well, they may or may not need a pap test. That's the test that screens for cancer, but they still need a pelvic exam. And we're even trying to move away from doing pelvic exams saying, you know, just go symptom treat and I can't stop my feet hard enough to say that is preventative. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've always thought pelvic exams and pap smears were the same. They one in the same. Wow. wow. At least when you go to the gynecologist. So if you go to a gynecologist, is it that they're generally doing yes, a pap, but the the pelvic exam is where they're they're feeling around well, for irregularities. And- well, actually, the entire exam and the collection of a pap smear is the pelvic exam. So the pelvic exam okay. is looking outside, inside, and the testing, which a pap is a test, where samples are taken from the cervix, the mouth of the uterus, and placed in a little jar. And any swabbing's done to look for infection or things like that. All of that encompasses a pelvic exam. Okay. So the tests are the test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. And not every pelvic exam is a pap. So you may come in and you've got an issue and the doctor uses a speculum. Probably if you survey 10 women, nine out of the 10 are going to say they had a pap smear. Hmm. And what they actually had was a pelvic exam. Thank you for clearing that up because mm-hmm. I thought they were the one and the same. I don't know about you, Brie, but. Yeah, I guess, again, it goes back to education. We're not getting <laughs> this education. No, we don't, most women know very little about their own bodies. They, that's true. And that's thanks to the shortage of time and just assuming and, you know, to some docs and nurses, what difference does it make? But it makes a huge difference because when you go to another doctor like me and you say, oh, I had a pap smear. Okay. And then I get the records. It's like, oh, you didn't have a pap smear. You had a pelvic exam. And they're shocked. Like, doesn't that happen every time? And it's like, no, not every time. (laughs) So, you know, it's important. Do you recommend a pap every year? So, you know, with the testing now, um, the, the big thing now is HPV testing. And that's that's the DNA test that's taken from a sample. I do feel that some people need to have a pap test every year because of their risk for HPV exposure because of high-risk sexual behavior. Those people probably do. But for your average person who is fairly monogamous and no previous problems with abnormal paps or precancer, they probably could go out a little longer. I, I don't follow the guidelines now, which say three to five years. I'm never going to follow those because I don't trust a lab. I don't trust that the lab was 100% accurate to tell a person, oh, you don't need another pap, you know, for five years because that's the latest guideline. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Uh, it Why is crazy. 
why don't you trust the labs as much? Is it because they have full vol- all this volume too and they're over inundated? Or Well, it's as simple as there is no test that's 100% accurate. Yeah. And that 1% or that 2% margin of error can make a difference in somebody having a major health journey. I, I just don't believe that. And, you know, the technologies in the HPV testing, and we do know that that's what we need to watch. But again, there are even different levels of HPV testing. And I can tell you now, many of my colleagues don't know the difference between them. And they're going to order the one that's standard on the lab requisition, and they don't understand the technology behind the test they ordered. So it's a lot of robotic care. It's a lot of industry-driven, insurance-driven mandates for what's not to be done. And as far as I'm concerned, they say it's to avoid over-testing and avoid doing unnecessary biopsies. And kind of true, but I think it's driven for the wrong reason. I think it's driven to cut cost and there are there are communities that are going to be hurt by it Mm -hmm. you know we already know the disenfranchised and the marginalized communities already have trouble access to care i being a gynecologist have to literally look at my the date on my pap because it just my days run together i know the importance of keeping up with dates but even i would have to look up my pap date to know has it been three years has it been five years i mean like really and then we're going to trust that they're going to keep a record to notify you when it's time i mean this is it's it's, nothing about it makes any sense to me nothing and i do believe in the science i do believe we are going to be more into hpv screening as the primary uh, and looking at the cells that the hpv is positive and pretty soon you'll be able to do your own hpv test at home you still can but uh, currently, it can be done at home, uh, but you would still need to see a doctor. Okay. Is And the HPV testing is something mm-hmm. that when you're getting a PAP, that's what it's testing for? Or are there other? So the HPV is a virus that's been around since the beginning of time. We just got smart enough to detect it. And that's because we had to come up with the, it's a virus. And 80% of people will have it in their lifetime that is sexually transmitted, unavoidable, but healthy immune systems put it in check and most people will sell right through it without it causing any issues. But then there's the 20% that will go on to have issues of which, you know, cervical cancer, anal rectal cancer, head and neck, mouth, throat cancer now is the culprit of much, HPV is the culprit of the majority of those cancers. So being able to screen for that now is a very big deal, okay, because that lets us know who needs a biopsy, you know, whereas when it was just the pap smear in the beginning of my career, we probably did a lot of biopsy, but we didn't miss any cancer. And the whole thing with HPV is, okay, we don't need to biopsy everybody. We just need to base the risk on your HPV status, you know, and so that is going to be the focus, but it's, again, a sample you know, taken from your your tissues and sent in the vial, same vial they use to check your pap, but it goes to a different lab. So literally when your pap vial goes to the lab, they take some of it and look at the cells and then they take some of it and run the DNA testing uh, to see if you have HPV. Okay. Does HPV affect women and men differently? 
Um, I've kind of, uh, I've heard that, but I'm not really sure like really what that means. Well, both men and women can get anal rectal cancer from it. Okay. And it's not just men having sex with men. It is heterosexual men who do not engage in anal play because it travels on the surfaces of the skin and secretion. So it is transmitted equally back and forth. Uh, male and female, which is now the new guidelines is that men and women up to the age of 45 can get HPV vaccinated. That is brand new. Yeah, because I thought it was only teenagers. Not, not anymore, up to oh. age 45. Wow. Yeah, it took enough men getting head and neck cancer, mouth and throat cancer, anal rectal cancer for them to recognize that we need to do this for men too. So if you've had it, or have it, can you get vaccinated for it? Or is it just the ship has nope. sailed for you? No, there are 75 different strains of HPV. Oh, okay. And in the latest vaccines, there are nine uh, types of the highest risk as well as genital wart. So the chances of a person having all nine of those is pretty slim. And what they can't say, but I can say from talking with the cancer specialist that there's cross immunity. So mm. if you got vaccinated for only those nine, you're going to have some cross immunity for the other ones. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about vaccines, a lot of controversy about vaccinating young children, boys and girls for HPV. And I can say since it's been out long enough now, there's enough evidence to say, as with any vaccine, there are going to be some people that are going to have an event because they don't know their body type for vaccine and find out the hard way. But it has reduced the incidence of cervical cancer. I mean, I before um, Gardasil, I would probably do a biopsy at least one or two a week. And now I might go a couple of months before I need to do a biopsy because after enough people have been vaccinated or infected with, with HPV, we get herd immunity. And that's really kind of also what's behind a lot of people getting vaccinated for COVID. It will eventually cause a decrease in the amount of virus. And so we are sparing people with it um, in terms of their HPV infection. But yeah, I mean, men typically won't show penile cancer but they are showing the anal rectal cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's a life taker. Uh, mm -hmm. There are people who are dying from, you know, anal rectal cancer. There have been some celebrities. I think Michael Douglas did come out and say that his throat cancer was HPV. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are some others who have had, you know, it was said colon cancer, but in actuality, it was anal rectal cancer due to HPV. And so as far as preventative measures go, what do you recommend? Well, so the lowest risk for people who have in their lifetime, three partners or less in their lifetime. Okay, so that's not the 21st century. Right. So that is the number one. Condoms aren't 100% at all. You know, they reduce the risk. Both male and female condom reduce the risk. But it is limiting partners and it's asking your partners and one of the biases i feel in medicine that really hurts women is that a woman can come in 
And if her doctor's office is on their P's and Q's, she's going to get her HPV testing as the guidelines say. And it used to be if you were 30 and above, you would get it automatically as part of your pap screening. Uh, now that's going to start sooner. Um, that the guideline is to start screening for HPV in the mid-20s. And then based on that result dictates when you get your pap. Um, they do not routinely screen men. And I don't get that, you know, because the same swab that I can use to swab the inside of a vagina or cervix, that same swab can be used anorectally. Same swab can be done if we want to, you know, check a guy, you know, in his urethra, no biggie. But, you know, they're not going to do it. Why? Because men don't favor those kind of exams. No one's educating them as to the importance of the exam. And so it's not being done unless they are a gay man. And they're seeing their providers who understand the high risk of anorectal cancer in that community. They're getting screened, but not your standard heterosexual male. Which is most of the population. I mean, the majority of the population. They're just like... You're missing a whole section of people. People that can also transmit it to other people. Well, and then uh, it's uh, not uh, just men because it can be transferred to women then. Women as well, yep. And so that is how women find out. Uh, my pap is showing I'm HPV positive. Well, my HPV test is showing I'm HPV positive. And what should I tell my partner to do? Mm-hmm. And I'll say... Um, I once upon a time, I would say for him to go to a urologist and be screened until the urologist are like, why are you sending them a test? If they're not having any issues, we don't need to look for it. Now, I disagree because they can look for it. They just don't. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So can men and their with their primary care doctor ask for this type of screening during like an annual wellness exam? So they absolutely can, but I would, and again, I, there are some, there are plenty of wonderful progressive preventive care doctors, primary care. That is not the standard of care in today's men's wellness. And with their using insurance, I could almost guarantee you that that test is not going to get offered. Wow. That's, that's insane. It's scary. Yeah. And it's bias. I mean, we have women who have to bear the cost of it and cervical treatment. HPV in a man can be treated with a cream, an, a, a lesion, a warty lesion from HPV that sheds the virus can be treated with a topical solution. You know, I, I can't for the life of me understand why we won't screen them as easy as, as it is to treat them. But we will put a woman through all of this. Yeah, because it makes more money for no uh, because industries, or does it I, save I do, them money? <laughs> it, well, for the insurance industry, paying for a biopsy is something they don't want to pay for. So let's let's go there first. Mm. Um, the other is the for them. It's I hate to say it. It's it's not that they don't have a regard for men. They do. I think they do not understand the impact of this on a woman, that there is no value given to the impact of these issues on women. 
so that, you know, they look at it, what's the statistical percentage of men who are getting anal rectal cancer compared to women who are getting cervical cancer? Well, we're going to see more women getting cervical cancer, but the numbers are changing. I mean, they're changing tremendously. And it's so sad to say when they finally equal, then it'll be a part of their standard care. Yeah. So why does it have to get to that point? <laughs> exactly. You know, so that that's just that's why we need more women, you know, sitting at the table when they're making the decisions about where insurance dollars need to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I see more doctors, I feel like trying to branch out and go against the traditional, you know, kind of practices and encompass more of a holistic or integrative approach because they know that that is because they care. <laughs> and it's not just about money. It, it, it Because again, like you said, it's very expensive practice in general. They, they, they but, want their autonomy. I mean, yeah. we don't, we didn't go to school to be, you know, program, uh, you know, robotic doctors. We didn't go to school for that. Yeah. Many of us, especially, you know, in my tenure, we went to school to help and this cookbook medicine approach that they want to use under the guise that it's cost effective. I, I say if you teach prevention um, and you teach people how to take care of themselves, you're going to save a lot more money, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, but yeah. So we, we actually sent out a poll to our listeners mm-hmm. where we open up the floor for them to send us questions to, to ask you. So we want to kind of pivot and go into that just so we okay. can get you to answer some of these questions. And I'll just start off. Uh, one of our listeners by the name of Lucy, she writes, healthcare in the U.S. is expensive and women's wellness exams can be triggering. What can we be on the lookout for and how? Uh, for example, breast exams, et cetera. I know you talked to a little bit about screening for HPV, but are there any other things that you feel as the women should be on the lookout for? Well, I'm not really sure um, what Lucy's saying and triggering. I'm going to take a guess on that. Exams, unnecessary exams or exams for patients who are anxious of being touched. Uh, needless to say, a pelvic exam is a vulnerable experience. And certainly with someone who you barely know, you know, and the manner in which it's done can be traumatic for a lot of women who have had unpleasant exam experiences. I am old school. I find things on my patients all the time that they didn't know they had. And but for my eyes seeing it or my hands feeling it, they wouldn't know. So it's sad to say that the art of doing a thorough patient exam is dying. They're relying 100% on tests. I don't feel like practitioners are getting the training. And in those instances, the value of the exam is just not there. If you're not going to do it right, proper and thoroughly, what's the point? You know, what I encourage, and I, I do see a lot of patients who have had traumatic experiences or have had traumatic body experiences, abuse issues, et cetera. And it's about establishing trust. It's about giving patients permission to tell you no. It's about checking in and saying, you know, are you okay to proceed? Do we need to reschedule for a day? Uh, Pre-COVID, did you need your support patient, your support person in the room? You know, and 
I can count the times I've had to cancel a visit because a patient couldn't handle it. I think there's a lot to be said about acknowledging a person's experience and working with them from their background. Do I feel that doctors, offices, primary care, wellness screenings do it with that sensitivity? Most of the time, these days, again, they're going to move away from an exam. Uh, I do feel breast exams are important, although research showed that they're not. Yes, they are. You know, especially if we have women who aren't doing any imaging because there's mixed opinions about radiation from a mammogram, fear factor there. How are we going to screen their breasts? You know, we're waiting for it to get to be big enough to feel. And then if it's cancer, that's been there for a while. You know, are we telling women, no, we don't need to look at your pelvic area, pee in this cup and we can screen you for everything or insert the swab and we can screen you for everything. But I go to do an exam and I say, how long have you had this discoloration? And then that leads to a biopsy that leads to the discovery of a condition she didn't know she had. So I do feel some things we don't have to do full exam on, but I, I still do them. And if a patient tells me, you know, I don't want to do that today, I'm not comfortable today, then we don't do it. We talk about the limitations of the of the visit. If we don't, how I'm limited in coming to an opinion, but it's really about her comfort. Definitely. And then what are some natural ways? We've we haven't gotten into hormones a ton yet, but what are some natural ways to balance hormones? And I think this is kind of a maybe a hard question because everyone's different and recommending something may not be good for one person, but what resources do we have to kind of look into this and, and to understand our bodies more and, and learn how we can maybe naturally approach this topic? So, and also I just want, I believe this is from Jaleesa, one of our listeners by the name oh, of yes. Jaleesa. Yep. Yes. Okay. So, you know, and, and this is a, very broad topic that I could spend an hour talking about to say that most people, when they say their hormones are out of balance, again, it comes back to education. So the first thing somebody, when they come and they say, I'm here because my hormones are out of balance. Okay, what does that mean? In what way are you suspecting that your hormones are out? Is it mood? Is it bloating? Is it inability to lose weight? Is it other symptoms? So here's what I discover. And my simplest thing, you know, for telling women in terms of which ones are the significant. If you get your period every month, clockwork regular, because your apps these days will tell you that, your hormones as far as your female hormones are fairly balanced. And it is true that women who carry a higher level of body fat are going to be more estrogen dominant because body fat makes estrogen. And so the solution for that, of course, is weight loss. Mm -hmm. Diet plays a role in it. Sugar does many things and it triggers the hormone insulin and insulin makes you store fat, but it also raises your male hormone factor. So once again, what do we do for that? We cut that sugar out of the diet. But when people are telling me it's my mood and they think their mood swings are due to their hormonal imbalance, that's a partial story. Because the mood is actually brain chemistry, uh, chemically in the brain, and it is triggered by natural 
uh, ebb and flow of your hormones. And so every cycle, a woman who's still getting period, she's ovulating and the hormones are supposed to go up and down, you know, depending on where you are in that spectrum and you shouldn't feel it. So if you're feeling it, something else is going on. And in a good many of my patients, we do have some neurochemical issues going on. Sometimes it is hormonal, but those women don't have regular periods. And those women may have acne issues or body hair issues, other signs that their male hormones are dominating. So, you know, but it'll come to a healthy diet, you know, healthy lifestyle, exercise, paying attention to your cycles. And your cycle is from the beginning of your period to the very next period, that whole 28, 30, 30 plus days, that's your cycle. And looking at that and analyzing your cycle can tell you a lot about what's going on with your hormones. So those are the things. But yeah, I see a good bit of people that I see have underlying brain chemistry issues affecting them and they think it's their hormones. Mm -hmm. You know, we still may address the hormones, but yeah. Should we get our hormones tested on a consistent basis? I know it, the, or or is that not telling a full picture? Because like you said, they could fluctuate depending on your cycle too. It may be misleading. Absolutely. So the reference range is, is pretty broad depending on where you are in your cycle. And here's why I would say to anyone who is asking for testing by someone who is not an endocrinologist. You have to know where in that cycle, you know, in that phase when you're interpreting those labs. So right before a period, estrogen levels are extremely low. And so you would say, test a woman randomly or your estrogen is low. It's supposed to be. And if you check it at another time, it's sky high and the progesterone is low. And you're saying, oh, you're estrogen dominant. Well, you're supposed to be right before you ovulate. That's normal. So that's one of my kind of uh, pet peeves about people being told and they had a random draw of their hormones. You know, it's you, you can't interpret them without knowing where was she in her cycle? Yeah. How long are her cycles? When does she ovulate? You've mm-hmm. got to know all of that. So the only people who should have hormone testing are people who are trying to get pregnant and haven't been able to. So we have from Alana, I have been experiencing brain fog. Could it be postpartum symptoms or COVID-19? And what should I do? Mm. Well, you know, there are many different things that can cause brain fog and not knowing any more of her story. If she's a new mom, sleep deprivation. How many times a night is she waking up to feed that baby? Could she have some underlying mood issues, baby blues? Uh, that's a real deal. Mm-hmm. Postpartum is a real deal and is not hormonal in the sense that people would say the hormones of pregnancy caused her postpartum. No, it was a brain chemistry issue that the hormones of pregnancy had an influence on, but the brain chemistry issue was there. And, you know, those can cause brain fog and COVID we now know. If a person has had a COVID uh, illness, that they can have brain fog. Yeah. Menopause definitely causes a brain fog. Yeah, I, I was definitely one of those people that experienced it really bad about six months postpartum. It was just like I couldn't remember anything, anything. I mean, couldn't even remember where I put the keys. It was just, it was really a mess. So definitely I have uh, 
I can relate to her on that if it is, in fact, a postpartum issue. But yeah, in a world where you have COVID-19, you just, without going to see your doctor to pin down what the issue is, you, you really don't know. Mm-hmm. Just because it could be so many different things, so definitely, and it could, and it, and thyroid health yep. plays a role in that as well. Yep, yep, for sure. So, thank you so much, Dr. Calloway. We're definitely going to close it out, but we yeah. appreciate you so much for answering our questions. We really appreciate that, Bree. Do you have anything else to add here? Yes. Where can folks connect with you? And do you do online? Can you be my gynecologist? <laughs> no, yeah. I, yeah so I, connect with you. I, I don't do telemedicine. You know, you actually have to be licensed in the state yes. to do it. And mm. uh, so I am in the metro Atlanta area and the suburbs called Decatur. Um, the name of my practice is Holistic Gynecology, and my website is holisticgynecology.com. And the information phone numbers are listed there as well. So, you know, uh, I do have patients who travel, but I try to encourage, you know, seeking uh, like-minded care providers where they are. Do you post anything about women's health on social media at all or not as of yet? Oh, I do. I have mm-hmm. a Facebook I do oh, have awesome. a Facebook, a Holistic Gynecology is my Facebook. I try to put significant content, you know, um, as opposed to just straight marketing, things that I think people should know, you know, based on what comes in my office and what I'm having to share with patients. Yeah. there's a. am also on Twitter, but I do Facebook. That's the one where I will share interesting articles or, you know, make a statement. If you have any articles about understanding your body type for vaccines, super interested in learning more about that. So I'll keep an eye out. Wink, wink. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And so excited you were able to do this. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank thanks you. for having me. All right. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Women Unfiltered. Until next time, remember to be true to yourselves, your authentic selves, every damn day. Thank you for tuning into the Women Unfiltered podcast. Follow us on Instagram at women.unfiltered and stay up to date with new episodes and show notes at womenunfiltered.wtf. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review, and share this podcast with a friend. As always, our views and opinions expressed are our own and solely for informational and entertainment purposes and do not express those of our employers.